Welcome everybody to the Tag Your It podcast. I am Ray Ray and in this episode we have the audio from the Why Do You Believe podcast where Dave and I had a discussion with Dr. Richard Howe and Adam Tucker on inerrancy, philosophy, and apologetics. Philosophy and apologetics. What is the proper way to defend the faith, to defend uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, the truthfulness of Christianity. That is what we are here to discuss this evening on Why Do You Believe Live? This is our second live stream of our SES uh, Why Do You Believe podcast. Uh, my name is Adam Tucker. I'm your host for this evening and also uh, get to uh, play color commentary uh, with my friend and mentor, Dr. Richard Howe, who will introduce uh, in just a moment. But uh, we pray there won't be any technical issues tonight. I'm still uh, learning this whole streaming thing, so uh, I'll just say in advance, if we have any issues, bear with us, and we'll try to get things back up and running. But Lord willing, uh, everything will be fine. And uh, like many of you, we are all uh, basically at home, and uh, so there are kids running around and uh, supper's being made and everything else. So uh, if you hear background noise, just be thankful for families and uh, we'll we'll leave it at that. So uh, thank you for your graciousness. Uh, so I do want to introduce our guests for this evening, and then we'll kind of set the stage uh, for some of the context uh, of our discussion. So first, let me bring on Dr. Richard Howe, and you'll see everyone there for a moment. Let me bring up Dr. Howe's camera. There we go. Dr. Howe, thank you for joining us this evening. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for Letting me be a part, as always. I, I enjoyed the uh, interactions with uh, brothers on uh, various important issues that we all cherish. Well, in case you don't know Dr. Howe, he is a uh, longtime professor of philosophy and apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, studied under Dr. Norman Geisler, the co-founder of SES, and uh, someone I'm proud to call a friend and a mentor, and uh, tonight I'm very proud to call a colleague, so I'm very humbled to be part of this, and uh, I will literally be providing color commentary and maybe a snide remark or two, and uh, I'll let Dr. Howe do all the work on uh, our end. Uh, Dr. Howe, really, I do appreciate you taking the time, and uh, thank you so much for uh, for being with us. Well, Adam, you're both too kind for to me, and you're too humble for yourself, so uh, I look forward to all of our contributions. Well, you're very kind. And let me introduce our other guest who will be joining us. We have Adam Ray Ray Cochran and Dave Van Bieber. They are the co-hosts of the Tag Your It podcast. Guys, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor. It is. It is a pleasure to be able to engage both of my fine brothers in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? That's right. Well, I'm That's in right. actually in well, that's right. I'm in North Carolina. Physically, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, guys, tell everybody uh, what the Tag You're It podcast is. is it, you guys just play a lot of tag games, or what, what's the deal with that? That's that's a little uh, sort of a little double entendre going on. But, uh, you know, first, uh, it was kind of like, you know, what kind of what could we call our podcast? You know, we're like the Princetonian Review or something like that, since we're Vantillion types. Um, but, you know, it's like Tag, um, the whole transcendental argument for God. Um, since we are in the uh, covenantal presuppositional camp, um, we kind of played with that, and I went, wait a second, wait a second. I was like, how does tag your it work? Wait a second, you're it. The onus is actually on you to prove the non-existence of God, so tag your it. So <laughs> that's kind of how we do it. But then um, just uh, 
as we did the podcast, people noticed that, you know, we kind of bounce off each other, kind of like a little game of tag. So it's kind of like a double entendre. Nice. I like it. I like it. And, of course, Dr. Howe has been on your show before, and uh, that's actually how you guys came on my radar screen. Uh, and so I'm going to bring us all back up here. So if you're making funny faces, just know that everybody can see you now. Uh, so just to set the context for this, so uh, like I said, Dr. Howe's been on your show before. Uh, that's how you guys came on my radar screen. And uh, Dave actually heard your debate uh, on your podcast uh, back in January, I think it was, the debate you did on inerrancy. And uh, listen to the follow-up shows you guys did on that. And find myself, found myself thinking, uh, man, you know, we're coming to all the same conclusions, but uh, in drastically different ways. I just don't think you can get there from here. Uh, and Dr. Howe and I spend a lot of time uh, talking about classical apologetics versus presuppositionalism and uh, w- which method is uh, more biblical, which method is uh, more God-honoring, which method is just the right way to, to defend the faith. And given our agreement on inerrancy, then I thought this would be a good uh, jumping off point uh, to have this discussion. So, again, just for context's sake, and then we'll we'll get into kind of our definitions of of what we mean by presuppositionalism and classical and all that. Um, Just just to set the stage here, uh, SES, and and Dr. Howe specifically, has uh, done a lot of work writing and speaking on uh, inerrancy the, the more recent inerrancy debates uh, that are ongoing. And uh, all of us here firmly hold to a, a very strong doctrine of inerrancy. The Bible is true in all that it affirms. The original autographs are uh, without error. And uh, we would stand arm in arm uh, in, uh, in holding to those views. We actually all happen to be Southern Baptists as well. And uh, so, again, we're all brothers here. This is certainly an intramural uh, dialogue, but given that we hold so much in common, we're all part of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. Dr. Howe used to be uh, president of that, actually. Uh, Dr. Geisler was the, the founder of that. Uh, so we, we really do have a lot in common, but approach uh, the defense of the faith in, in very different ways. So uh, guys, just uh, briefly, why don't you tell us, uh, at least in your own words, how you would uh, classify what presuppositional apologetics is? Well, I guess uh, as uh, Dr. Van Til had uh, talked about, it is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life. Um, So um, at the outset, it is the fact that uh, we must, uh, I mean, it is the presupposition um, that God exists there and therefore we can uh, move out of that. Without that, um, knowledge is is not intelligible, uh, debating is not intelligible, what we're doing right now is not intelligible um, without the fact of the triune God and his existence. And I would add to that real quick that for me, covenantal apologetics is simply using um, the Bible to explain reality. Yeah. How's that? Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, So, Dr. Al, again, for the sake of our uh, audience, could you give us just a a brief snippet of what we mean by classical apologetics? Is it just uh, evidentialism? What's going on there? Well, uh, I think it's important to distinguish what we care about classical apologetics in this context of a debate with the presuppositionalists versus what we would say about classical apologetics with respect to how it might compare and contrast with things like evidentialism and, and, and sort of this spectrum of non-presuppositionalists. So as far as the latter is concerned, typically what is characteristic of the classical method is that you establish the existence of God before you can give specific 
evidence and arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The reason that is in our mind is because arguments for the truth of Christianity in particular among competing theisms in the world is a, will be an appeal, among other things, to historical miracles, not the least of which is the resurrection of Jesus. But miracles are only possible if there is a God who exists. So if a, if a naturalist or an atheist is consistent with his naturalism or atheism, he would never be able to uh, conclude that an, an event from history was a true miracle, because in order to be a miracle, there would have to be a God who is the cause of that event. So as a matter of principle, we would insist that a person has to know that God exists before they could even be open to the possibility that an event from history like the resurrection of Jesus was even possible. So now the evidentialist is more or less going to say, well, it doesn't really matter. We can kind of mix all these questions together, God, resurrection, and these kind of things. So it, for us, it's a principle debate, even if practically speaking, people sometimes aren't consistent and they may jump from some, uh, some point to some conclusion inconsistently, so to speak. With respect, however, to how we see ourselves vis-a-vis -vis presuppositionalism in particular, I think a fair way to say it is that we, we give viability and credibility to the whole notion of natural theology, that human beings have faculties that we believe God has created us with that enable us to know certain aspects of reality, primarily and initially the physical world around us, and from those in effect, undeniable truths, uh, we can demonstrate, and or rather construct and demonstrate the existence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, G and Jacob, and the God who incarnated in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, the, and so, we would just we would just deny the the uh, the assertion that it's the presupposition of God that is has to be in place before we could have it. Uh, knowledge. We can have knowledge even in the denial of God because there are some things about reality that we can't fail to know. And we think that ultimately because we know God has created us that way, even if the atheist doesn't. Even if he doesn't even see that it's God who made him, he, and the atheist still cannot fail if, his, if he's not blind to see that the sun is shining, for example. So I think that's where the the rub comes and then we can get into the weeds on some of those as we go along. Sure. Uh, thank you uh, all for that. Uh, so let me, um, actually, let me change my uh, camera angle here a little bit. Just saw that was kind of messed up there. There we go. Mr. Tucker, Adam, yes. uh, I, can't, I, I would probably confuse if I say Adam. So uh, <laughs> I you are my friend, Adam uh, Tucker, but if I refer to you as Mr. Tucker, it's only to designate a difference and, and uh, <laughs> to be uncordial. Un um, I'm curious, you know, obviously you're kind of uh, moderating hosting. I'd love to hear a little bit from you as well. I think that that would be an effective thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, not that I'm not really glad to hear from Dr. Howe, but I'd love to hear, <laughs> hear your take it too. I think it's, it, we'd all like to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So again, just for context sake, uh, you know, this is uh, for our audience. This is not a debate. This is not a formal sort of dialogue. This is just a free flow uh, conversation among four brothers, really. So uh, there's not a moderator. Uh, I'm running the live stream. So I, by default, have to serve as the host. Uh, so but Dr. Howe and I obviously share uh, very similar uh, thoughts on these issues. And I've, I've learned uh 
most everything I claim to sort of kind of almost know uh, from him and uh, from his colleagues uh, at SES. So uh, I, I do agree. I think uh, I'll just elaborate on one thing Dr. Howe said. Um, first of all, I appreciate what R.C. Sproul and, and others have said, uh, that the heart can't embrace what the mind doesn't think is true. Uh, and so I do think it's important that we uh, talk to people as human beings, uh, understanding that they have intellects with which to think, they have the ability to know truths about reality, and we can uh, meet them where they are in that regard and lead them to the gospel. Uh, but I think Dr. Howe uh, alluded to an important point, and maybe it's a good jumping-off point for our discussion, uh, that there's a difference in the, um, and Dr. Howe, you can correct me because I won't phrase this properly, but there's a difference in the assumption uh, that God exists, or there's a difference in the, the necessity of God existing for anything else to exist and this conversation to happen and all that, versus someone having the assumption that God exists in order for these conversations to happen and, and to, to be able to, to point people to the gospel. So uh, certainly we would agree that nothing would exist if God were not creating it in, or had not created it and sustaining it in existence. Uh, but someone need not have that assumption uh, or even knowledge in order to uh, have a meaningful conversation about truths we can know from reality that ultimately point back uh, to its creator. So maybe we can use that as a jumping off point and uh, I'll, I'll throw it back to you guys to uh, see maybe where our differences are in that regard. Well, if we get an opportunity to say a few things at first, um, and Mr. Tucker, Adam, if you don't <laughs> mind, uh, would you prefer that we kind of just, uh, we've kind of put forward a little bit of a position on our understanding of what presuppositional or uh, we're going to take the elephant approach and saying uh, covenantal apologetics. And um, again, I love what Dr. Oliphant says, um, and I know that Dr. Howe has engaged him, and so he's probably well familiar with this. Dr. Oliphant essentially says that uh, presuppositional apologetics is kind of a poor terminology because everyone has presuppositions. Uh, the naturalist atheist has presuppositions. And so to be better in explaining what we mean and the methodology by which we defend the gospel, and actually I would say proclaim the gospel is the premier element when I think of covenantal apologetics, the assumption based upon what God has spoken in such a way so as to reveal himself to his creation who is made in his image, and therefore reality is again only understood because, and only possible, because God has again covenanted into relationship with his creation, his image bearers who exist yeah. because he exists. And so I'll kind of hand that off to Adam here as we tag team this. Yeah, yeah. So, um, if you guys, if you don't mind, I've got some about maybe three minutes in length. Yeah, Sounds sure. good to me. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, so this is kind of like a little opening statement that I wrote anyway, so um, I'll just start from here. It says, uh, it has been said from the other side of the screen that we both have the same conclusion on inerrancy. While in some ways they appear um, that there appear ideals that are synonymous, in actuality our position on inerrancy is not one in the same. Uh, there is an issue of principium, epistemological origin between us and our brothers. 
uh, though we reject pure fideism, we also reject that natural or that neutral and autonomous philosophy and empiricism, among other things, is a rational way to deal with unbelief at any level. Um, thereby, the issue at hand is a theological and therefore a philosophical one, not the other way around. So Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So scripture proclaims, their, um, scripture proclaims therefore, that not only is there non-neutrality among those um, in Adam, there can never be neutrality for those in Adam by their own terms. So, though we may agree that every fact and experience is what it is by virtue of the covenantal, all-controlling plan and purpose of God, and man, male, and female as image of God is in covenant with the triune God for eternity, and that all people know the true God and... That knowledge entails covenantal obligations. The vast chasm of our differences exists in the reality that the faith that we are defending must begin with and necessarily include the triune Father, or the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who, as God, condescends to create and redeem. God's covenantal revelation is authoritative by virtue of what it is, and the Christian apologetic will necessarily stand on and utilize that authority in order to defend Christianity. Um, it is the truth of God's revelation together with the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about a covenantal change from one who is in Adam to one who is in Christ. Those who are and, and remain in Adam suppress the truth that they know. Those who are in Christ see the truth for what it is. Uh, there is an absolute covenantal antithesis between Christian theism and any other opposing position. Thus, Christianity is true and anything opposing it is false. Uh, suppression of the truth, like the depravity of sin, is total but not absolute. Thus, every believing position will necessarily have within it ideas, concepts, notions, and the like that has been taken and wrenched from their true Christian context. Therefore, it is because of inerrancy we have our, our apologetic methodology, inerrancy being a presupposition making an apologetic intelligible, not the other way around. Okay. Uh yeah lot there obviously and uh we'll I, I, that's what i appreciate appreciate about it just to kind of free throw let me try that again that's what i appreciate about a free flowing uh conversation yeah. uh you know we don't have to do uh you have one minute to respond dr how go yeah uh, so right. let's so, just have a conversation but how would you like to uh yeah, address this if, dr how i may then if, if it's okay with with uh with dave and ray ray kind of do a similar thing. I, I brainstormed on some what I would call just key points that maybe can preempt some rabbit trails that we might be tempted to chase because, well, you'll see as I go along. So if, if with your indulgence, I'll just kind of mention and say a few things about each of these handful of points, but realizing every one of them would deserve to be defended a lot more than I'm doing right now. So if we want to come back to any of them as we go along, then People can, you know, challenge or, or, or whatever. Uh, uh, first of all, and, and I talked to Adam Tucker about this in advance to make sure that I, this was fair characterization. But Adam Tucker and I are philosophically Thomas, whatever that means. That means, in principle, that we uh, align ourselves with the philosophical thinking of Thomas Aquinas, even if it means we don't necessarily concur with Aquinas on certain theological points. We do agree with his this Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, as we call it. 
So that's, that's what informs our classical apologetics. And the reason I pointed out here is because not everybody that would self-identify as a classical apologist would necessarily be philosophical Thomists, which means then they may say things that, that Dave and Ray Ray would criticize that Adam Tucker and I would, would agree with their criticism. That's very possible. We say, yeah, I, we think you're right. That's not. And so uh, we, we can't be held responsible, if you will, for what some other classical apologist might have said in a similar vein that I'm not going to hold your feet to the fire of what John Frame may think about Van Til or what Francis Schaeffer or even Gordon Clark, for that matter. It's not yeah. fair to you guys if, you're, if you don't agree with Clark's characterization of presuppositionalism. Second, just a point of uh, boundaries, uh, the criticisms that I have in my mind and when I teach a course on this subject is largely, in fact, as I think about it, is almost exclusively, with just a few rare exceptions, aimed at how I understand Van Til uh, via Greg Bonson and now Scott Oliphant. So they inform my understanding, uh, both reading Van Til and his primary sources, but as well as their Bonson and Oliphant's unpacking of that. Uh, so that's the presupposition that I have in mind, and I think that's fair to you guys that that's the presuppositionalism, that's the version of covenantal uh, apologetics that you guys would would, would self-identify. Uh, third is um, is this idea of starting points came up. So let me just state what I see our differences to be, and then you can either challenge what you think ours is or my misunderstanding of what yours is. Uh, our starting point, in terms of, if you want to talk about it this way, of knowledge, arises from our encounter with objective reality, just the external world. That's how. That's exactly what humans do. When you're a baby, you just far, you first start entering intersection with the physical world around you, what you see, hear, taste, touch, or smell. And we think from what we see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, we're able to demonstrate a number of metaphysical truths, some of which we can get into later on if you're curious about what some of those are. That's our starting point. So it's our starting point is not epistemological, it's ontological. It's a it's a encounter with reality, uh, physical reality in particular and created reality. Fourth, I think presuppositionalism, as I read a lot of it and hear people debate it, is plagued by by uh, what I call pseudo problems. Again, this needs to be unpacked. I won't do it here. I'll just summarize it by saying many presuppositionalists that I've listened to in debate, including Greg Bonson, and, and particularly in his debate with Gordon Stein, offers his presuppositionalism to supposedly solve a problem that we would say is not even a problem to begin with. They're pseudo problems created by modern and contemporary philosophy, particularly created by Cartesianism forward. I'll give you one example to trigger your thinking if we want to revisit this, like the problem of induction. So uh, how are you going to know that your inductive reasoning is valid, so to speak, or, how, or at least viable? How are you going to know that the future is like the past? Uh, how are you going to answer the Humean critique? Well, all of these are pseudo problems. You didn't have a problem of induction from Aristotle up through the late Middle Ages for the most part. That's a, that's a problem created by certain philosophical moves uh, exemplified in Descartes that now so many contemporary Christian philosophers are running around trying to solve when the solution was there uh, before there was the problem. That's, well, again, we can unpack that. And then I think I got two more. 
fifth, R. Allen Killen is a very interesting fellow. He's a covenant theologian, apologist, professor of apologetics at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, decades ago. He does a very interesting critique of Van Til. One thing that I have a pull quote from that I can give you later or send it to you off the air was his uh, criticism of Van Til failing to distinguish that a person can know a fact versus how a person morally responds to that fact. And I think Van Til conflates those two. So all the verses that come up, men love darkness rather than the light, doesn't mean that a lost man can't know when the sun is shining, can't know that, that two plus two equals four. So his not willing to come to the light doesn't keep him from knowing some things unavoidably about the world around him. And then I think last that I'll pr bring up is uh, I hear a lot of presuppositionalists tout uh, Romans 1, 18 particularly, and, uh, but really uh, 18 through about 21, touting the fact that all people know God and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. But what I would suggest that the person do that, that picks that verse up is continue the argument through Romans 1. Because what you'll find is it's not merely people know there's a God and they suppress that truth. That's true enough, as Romans 1, uh, 18 and 21 tell us. But then it goes on to say, in verse 23, that that same man, and by the way, whether we think this is a universal statement of the human race or a general statement of the human race, or Paul's talking about a particular episode, we can have that conversation. For the sake of argument, I'll grant that Paul is speaking generally about the human race, because obviously, when the chapter goes on to say everybody collapses into homosexuality, I don't think even a presuppositionalist to say every atheist around you is homosexual, even though that's the argument Paul makes of this chain. But I think he's making a sort of generalized statement, but we can have that debate in a minute. Let me just finish this last point then, or flesh it out, or complete it. But not only do they know God and suppress the truth, verse 23 says they changed the glory of God uh, into the, uh, the incorruptible God, into the corruptible. Then exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then in verse 28, did not retain the knowledge of God. So even though it starts out, they know God and they suppress it, through this cascade of sin, that knowledge of God is, is jettisoned from, from the uh, unbeliever. It's enough initially to render him guilty in rebellion, but his sin eventually evacuates what knowledge he might have had. So it isn't true anymore that there aren't atheists. There are atheists. In fact, Paul even calls uh, uh, the Galatians before they were saved, atheists. Mm. Any rate, that's that's enough for right now. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Howe. Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating discussion. So many different uh, topics that that we need to touch on. So uh, they got I, come I, back on. Say again. I was just interrupting you to contribute to the free flow atmosphere. <laughs> I'm going to do Thank that. You. Every time you start talking, I'm just going to interrupt you and That's go, oh, great. sorry, free-flowing here. <laughs> uh, so I won't add to that uh, for now. Obviously, I have nothing to add to that, but uh, I'll turn it back over to our uh, our tag team over here. Can I just call you guys the tag team? Will that work? And, uh, oh, brother. We'll uh -oh. go from there. 
very kind of you. Uh, if I can be teamed up with uh, Adam here, I'm always grateful and uh, very grateful that each of us are what I would say Dr. Geisler would call total inerrantist uh, in the vital issues on the inerrancy debate produced by Dr. Fresnel. Uh, really enjoyed that idea. And so uh, really good to talk to brothers who agree with the truth, the veracity of God's word. I think that, again, that's kind of where I really want to kind of camp out. And um, I think that it is very important that our framework for approaching apologetics, approaching knowledge, approaching truth claims is laid out. And I think that Dr. Howe does, a, at least a, a, to me, a, a very fair um, presentation of how I would affirm much of, not everything line by line, but it was, a, for, for a general sake, a lot of what he says about uh, how presuppositionalism, or what we'll again say covenantal apologetics, is explored. Uh, but when I think about the inerrancy debate, because I know that's where we really wanted to camp out, uh, I think about some truths that I think are just incredibly central to the two varying positions. Um, for the covenantal approach, we again begin with Scripture, and we would root the idea that God's word is true. God's word is inerrant in things like Titus chapter two or chapter one verse two, Hebrews chapter six verse eighteen. We would say that we will begin because of the nature of God, the covenantal God who has revealed Himself, uh, starting with Adam and Eve, has continued to reveal Himself, has always done so, and told us from the very beginning that He is true. What He has said is real. And so, based upon the character of God, I begin with the doctrine of inerrancy. I'm not trying to uh, be a ship passing in the night, by the way, uh, and not respond to what Dr. Howe said. I, I will try to get to that here and not monopolize any of the time. But when I think about the doctrine of inerrancy and how the presuppositionalist would approach that in a way that would be different from that of the classical apologist, the classical apologist would begin with a different position actually on the autonomy of man. Um, for me, this debate actually, again, uh, starts and ends with a biblical anthropology. Um, how do we understand passages? And I'm glad that you were in Romans chapter 1, and I would agree with you very much that it is a, um, again, if you look at verse 16 uh, and 17, Paul is talking in, ver in chapter 1 about everybody, The again, the Jews and the Greek. He's talking about the world there, I think, uh, is a very clear understanding of Romans chapter 1. But then he moves into Romans chapter 3. And uh, you know that this is exactly probably where I was going to go, but he's very clear that uh, these are statements about man. Again, if we go back to that reality, Jew and Greek, talking about everyone, he then begins to clarify and teach on these Old Testament passages in Romans chapter 3. No one's righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Uh, in light of those expressions, the ability for man to reason becomes, in my mind, a, a natural problem. And it's not to say a natural problem, but a, a theological problem. Um, so I would reason, Dave? What, just so I'm clear, what do you mean by a man's ability to reason? What, what does that yeah. mean? No one is seeking for God. No one is righteous. Now, again, by God's, what I would say, general grace, um, he has given people capacities. But those capacities, going back to Romans 1, are suppressed. Those capacities are not going to be conforming to a standard that would meet what God has revealed in, uh, in Scripture covenantally. Um, for example, for me, I think the core difference for our approaches in understanding 
inerrancy is I believe the classical apologist would say that man has a capacity to reason about the things of God. And for me, that uh-huh. just uh, only certain things about God. And and see, I would say that those certain things about God are not enough. Just because um, flu, just because Anthony flu knows that there's a God, and I don't know if he's deceased, but just because he has agreed that there is a God, just because uh, again a Jehovah Witness believes there is a God, that's not going to lead them to the Triune God of Scripture. Uh, right. The Triune God of Scripture's claims are that the world doesn't make sense without him because, again, the world doesn't exist without him speaking and revealing himself. And so, Can I I ask you something just to make sure, because I want to track with your argument, so I want to make sure I don't get too lost. Thank you so much. No, and I can be long-winded. You know, I'm Baptist. No, 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 not not at all, not at all. So um, tell me if you agree with this assertion. When we find an example of someone who's an unbeliever, but they start showing what we might, identify as signs of them, quote, coming to the Lord, that it might be kind of dragged out over time, but we would accredit that ability to do that as an act of the Holy Spirit in their life. Right? Does that sound fair? Yes, certainly. I would agree that, um, you know, looking at things like John chapter 6, verse 44, uh, John chapter 10, um, we certainly see that the Holy Spirit does, again, call uh, men unto himself. I think um, very clearly about passages uh, like Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Acts 13, 48, where, again, those whom God had appointed unto salvation uh, came. And so, one thing that's interesting in Scripture, we don't hear someone, and there's not, not an example, and this is a key piece, and I would go to the book of Acts, um, that's kind of the key, I think, piece for me, is the entire book of Acts, you know, there's 25 sermons in the book of Acts, and every single one of those sermons in the book of Acts, um, of the 25 sermons, there's 10 major sermons that we'd consider, uh, and that would be according to John Polhill and his commentary. Uh, but there is never a case where it says that someone was convinced over this long period of time of reasoning. Um, and not to say that that didn't happen, but I would say the methodology that we see there is based upon the framework. Uh, Paul, Stephen, Peter's sermons in particular are based on the framework that God has spoken and they don't appeal to any other type of outside sources besides God's word to see God sovereignly call people so what to What would you do with uh, Cornelius, who is described as a God-fearer, whose prayers went up as a memorial before God, but he, he didn't have eternal life until Peter comes, sh- uh, preaches the gospel to him, and then he believes? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be fair to say that, well, whatever was going on in Cornelius's life, um, it, it apparently was already beginning, beginning to happen. It seemed like to me that the Holy Spirit was beginning to work in his heart. So l- let me just throw this out and then see if you can incorporate it into, and finish the point you're making. Uh, and maybe this will kind of attenuate the, the, the place you were going to go with, with your point, because I don't want you to lose your train of thought here. You're not going to distract me, I promise. So, uh, the place. so very, very early on in, in my and my, some of my siblings' Baptist experience, we uh, stumbled onto uh, Arthur W. Pink, and particularly his book, Sovereignty of God. And uh, that sort of redirected a lot of our theology into the doctrines of grace. Uh, my oldest brother, who just went to be with the Lord, uh, is retired PCA pastor. Uh, my uh, youngest brother is a, is a ruling elder in a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America, if people don't know what that initialism means. Uh, all of that's to say that 
uh, I have such a deep affection for the doctrines of grace and some spe the specifics, specifics of Calvinism. And I jokingly tell some people, Geisler's joke that when he was asked, did he agree with Aquinas' view about God's sovereignty, Geisler jokingly said, no, Aquinas is too Calvinist for me. Meaning what, a, what Aquinas thought about God's sovereignty and election would probably make a lot of Calvinists jump up and cheer. But at, at any rate, uh, so I, I forgot what train of thought I was on there for a second. Uh, I was going to ask you a question. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Yeah. So uh, having come to believe in the sovereignty of God and election and these kind of things, typically then the first thing a person encounters as a challenge is then why evangelize? Why preach the gospel? And I think the Calvinist answer to this uh, that I've used and I've heard and I think is right is, look, the means by which God brings the elect to faith is by the means of evangelism. That's what he uses to do it. I think there is a, a, uh, a vivid parallel between that as a how a person gets eternal life versus the role that God uses for apologetics to address intellectual stumbling blocks that people may have for them to even consider the claims uh, that the evangelist is making. So the apologist is in a unique position to address these pseudo-problems and things by showing him that, that his assumptions are false or whatever. That's what classical apologetics does. So it isn't in juxtaposition to the act of God any more than preaching the gospel is in opposition to the sovereignty of God. Any rate, throw that in for our consideration. Okay, they're frozen on mine. Uh oh, are they frozen? Uh, yeah, we 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 uh, I think. Let's see. Uh, that here. was it. I mean, I just answered all the questions, and now we're <laughs> we're done. Stand by. Let's see what we got going on here. Oh, there they are. They're back. They're back. We lost you guys for a second. Hey. All right. Well, we lost uh, Howe for a second, but we sure. had him. But I, I really right. appreciate you, Dr. Howe, and uh, I hope you know I, I greatly admire your scholarship. I'm thankful uh, thankful for your positions over and over again, and, and your question is outstanding. How do I understand Cornelius? And I would actually add a little bit to that question. And how do I understand the Ethiopian eunuch who had God's word in his hand? But you notice in each of those situations, both of those men had to have the gospel proclaimed to them, not oh, another right. argument for the existence of God. Right. And so my kind of my response, and I want to hand it over to yeah. Adam because I don't want to, man, I can monopolize time and, and I hate to do that. Yeah, and I mean, I think out of that, um, I see this distinction um, that, and it's something that I had to battle with too, and it's something that I preached on uh, because of First uh, Peter 1 through 3, uh, you know, what is apologetics? So, you know, as the philosophical-minded person, you're always asking about the nature of stuff and going, trying to get back to those, um, back to that, like, foundational principle. Um, you know, where is the exegetical evidence in Scripture that apologetics is, like, the the irreducible complexity of the eye, or answering those questions, because uh, I see in Scripture that apologetics is just defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What is that faith? Defending the hope that lies within you is actually the gospel. You know, the irreducible complexity of the eye to me is not the gospel. That's not what. I mean, you can answer that question to somebody. Uh, that come immediately to mind to me, uh, Ray Ray. If I can, if I can interrupt you again, uh, when Jesus said, "If you don't believe me, believe." 
for the very sake of the works. So he's appealing to this evidence over against believing him as God in the flesh. Second is when Paul was saying, look, uh, I, you've seen these things. They weren't done in a corner. He's appealing to the events that surrounded the, the message that he was preaching. And so I, I think Dave's observation is correct. There, there was no need for either Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch to hear a cosmological argument because they're already theists. Of course they're not going to. Of course that. I don't know why that would even. That's not a counterexample to the point, though. Yeah, classical I apologetics. I point of the role that apologetics might play. I wasn't using Carnelius as an example of apologetics. I was using him as an example of somebody who, though they don't have eternal life, are still on their way to that by some kind of means that we, I think, would agree is the Holy Spirit working in their life. Well, why can't the Holy Spirit use apologetics to do what he, what he does in evangelism? That's, yeah, that's I mean, what I love about I, classical apologetics is it, it meets people where they are. If they don't need an argument for God, they already believe that some supreme being exists, great. You've got that much legwork already taken care of, and you can jump in the fray wherever they are on their journey and, and build the case from there. No one's saying you have to give an argument for the theistic God every single time you talk to a person. It depends on the person you're talking to. And, and the examples mentioned from the New Testament, even in Acts, well, that wasn't needed. They had idols to umpteen gods and one unknown God, and that's the one Paul referred to. Uh, when uh, Paul, I think it was Paul and Silas, were called uh, Zeus and Hermes, I think it was, what does he appeal to? He appeals to nature to point to the existence of the one true God and then builds his case uh, from there. So that that's what I find so uh, pragmatic, really, even with classical uh, apologetics. That's not why I'm classical, uh, but just from a pragmatic standpoint, that is uh, how it works itself out in conversation, at least when it's done well. Yeah, and I think uh, what I'm seeing is mostly is the difference because, like, you know, this is why I like presuppositional apologetics because I can meet um, people where they are, but, you know, I think the, the methodology difference is um, I don't get in their car with them um, and let them drive. Um, I get in the car and go, here is where you reduce to absurdity. Um, now get in my car, and then here's the triune God of Scripture as He is revealed. Yeah, you don't get to you don't get to play judge over this because uh, you know whenever I talk, I've got I've got a guy that's always on me, and he says that you know if um, you know God created, if God gave Adam and Eve all their all this instruction and all that stuff, if it was sufficient enough, they wouldn't have sinned. And it's like you are missing the point. <laughs> but so you know, like whenever I uh, move with that, I go you know. You're, you're saying that, but you don't even have a standard of sufficiency to call something sufficient or not. And that's your absurdity. Um, and, instead of trying to talk with him and, and stay in his realm to where we'll just argue in his circle all day, it's like, come to my circle, and this is what you have to believe from the outset, that yes, in the beginning, God, and here's all this, and here's why it is sufficient, and, and here's where you are, your autonomy is coming in and saying, well, I just don't like the results, so God's plan sucks. And I'm like, uh, again, you're begging a subjective, yeah, that's your opinion, but you actually haven't rooted in objective reality, which the only way I know objective reality is because the omniscient one has explained, not at all reality to me, but the reality I need to know. So I why, think this I, is, I, well, go ahead, Dr. Well, I was just going to ask, uh, you know, I made the accusation in my, video with uh, Cameron Bertuzzi, which by the way, just, just for the, just to kind of 
uh, make sure people understand, uh, I didn't label that interview uh, a refutation of presuppositionalism or whatever. That, that wasn't my title. And that was given by Cameron. Second, I know, Dave, you said, well, I was given the title. I was expecting a presentation, lay out the points of the system, and then deconstruct them. It was like, well, second, I, I wasn't given a presentation. I was doing an interview. And so since I was being subjected to the interview, I, I can't ask. I was being asked questions. Mm -hmm. I knew what the topic was going to be, but, I, you know, if I, I, I will tell you that I try to do a more fuller, quote-unquote, refutation in the course that I teach. So maybe before this is out, I can pitch for the course that I'm teaching starting May 11th, and we can get both of you guys in there for free uh, to take the course. And then you can do a, a sort of deconstruction of my arguments there. But uh, uh, any rate, uh, I interrupted somebody. Well, I, again, I don't even know what I was going to Actually, Dr. Howe, I do believe it is your turn, and I don't want to be, uh, I mean, I have plenty to say, because uh, I want to kind of work through some of your statements, but I also don't want to cut you off because... No, no, that's fine. I, I was just trying to get us back to, not, not that we weren't on it, but I, 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 so I can just get a direct answer from two informed presuppositionalists. Kind of. Why, I understand why God is essential, is necessary for the existence of his creation. But why must an unbeliever presuppose that? I understand why oxygen is necessary for a person breathing, but the presupposition of oxygen isn't necessary to breathe. It's the reality of the oxygen. So it's why is it that the pre this was the accusation I leveled that you guys were trying to interact with the ontology versus epistemology, and when when you tried to give a direct answer, all you did was just repeat the very mistake that I keep saying, keep thinking I see, and it's this. Whenever I've read, I've got I've got tons of quotes in my notes. If you want specifics from Van Til, from Bonson, from Don Collett, from Jason Lyle, from uh, from uh, Jim. Uh, Kathy, and they do this. If they say, well, you have to presuppose God in order to have knowledge. I go, so why should I think that's true? And the answer they give is how God is the precondition of knowledge. I go, understand that God is, but why must the, the lost man presuppose God is? And I've never seen anybody give an answer. That's and even when you yeah. quoted Jason Paulus, I'd love that article, by the way, you mentioned. Uh, that you that you referenced in the in your in the podcast yeah. from Always Ready, uh, all all he did was just restate the epistemological point. So what is the answer to that? It's something I've never heard from a presuppositionalist. So let me make sure because I want to clarify because goodness, if I can answer this question right, then Doctor How uh, I've turned you to a presuppositionalist. <laughs> so if, I, if I'm convinced, if I can see why the presupposition of God is necessary. I would be a presuppositionalist, absolutely. So, I would, and you are certainly welcome to ding me and say, you didn't answer it, and then I'll just say, gosh, I'm in great company with some great guys whose books are on my shelves and that I've marked up. <laughs> I want to talk about some of those in a minute, but go ahead. Yeah, um, I will say it, it's interesting, and I really appreciate the dialogue so much because I am being challenged and encouraged uh, I do want to make sure we get some time in inerrancy, though, because I think that's a key piece for each of us, and it means a lot to us. But to answer your question, why must you presuppose God? That is the question. Is that correct? Right. Why must, why must not why must you presuppose God, but mm -hmm. why is the presupposition of God 
a necessary condition for knowledge. Are you telling me that a, a lost person can't know the sun is shining unless he presupposes that God exists? And the Trinitarian God of the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, to be more specific. And I guess my answer would be, why, why is the presupposition of God the, uh, the, I guess the ultimate presupposition of all predication is because everybody is already presupposing God anyway. So we just need to explain that. Um, your that's, actions, that's not right? true according to Romans 1. Because Romans 1 ends up in the argument that they did not retain the knowledge of God. So people aren't presupposing God anymore. Yet they still know when the sun's shining. So my response, while it would be somewhat similar to Adam's, won't be shot for shot, I would say that we live in God's world, and therefore that knowledge of God that is suppressed, um, while you say, again, at the end of Romans that they've given up that knowledge, um, we know that in Proverbs it says, the fool says in his heart there is no God, um, they've still not given up the reality that they're in God's world. And I hope I didn't just... Yeah, but that's an ontological point. That's not epistemological. You can't give up the reality that you're in God's world. That's, of course. And, and see, the reason I, I, my voice gets animated because I get excited about this is because this was exactly an explicit point that Bonson had to correct Sproul on. Bonson himself said... We're not just merely making the ontological point in the debate. I'm talking about the debate that they had at RTS back in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. He says, we're making an epistemological point. And he acknowledges everybody knows, that is everybody in this debate, knows of course there has to be God before there could be knowledge because he's the creator. He says, we're making an epistemological point that you can't even have logic, you can't even think, you can't even have knowledge without presupposing God. And I go, well, why should I think that's true? Every time I've read in, an, in a book by an presuppositionalist, when they try to explain, well, here's why, they always end up explaining why God is the precondition of knowledge. Well, I already know that. Bonson already knows I know that. It's the epistemological point I'm trying to find an answer to. I, I just have never found it anywhere. Their, their worldview is reduced to absurdity, right? Everything they do is uh, is reduced to absurdity, and they're inconsistent. Again, God's grace and mercy doesn't destroy all of us, and therefore God allowing people to exist in his world is the necessary uh, reality, again, until he judges everyone, and then, of course, everyone will, because in the side of eternity and the next side of eternity, they will know and do know that God exists. And so they cannot suppress that knowledge in any action and any statement and anything they do. So the very fact that they would see sunlight and know that it's sunning or, or know that it's sunny or the fact that you can have an atheist brain surgeon and do an excellent job and they can say, oh, I know there isn't a God. The reality is they can't act consistently because they're in God's universe. And therefore, yes, there is an epistemological question. Can they again, stand up on the chair that they are saying they're standing on. And I would just say that it. Uh, when I read Oliphant, I would say that that'd be a piece of the quicksand quotient, in my opinion. This yeah, is I, know, the, I think that's exactly right. I, I'm sorry, Adam. I, I think I'm sitting on You're fine. Adam. I, I think that's exactly right, that their position reduces to absurdity. But that's exactly, exactly what classical apologetics does. It shows the lost man. It exposes is sort of the 
uh, is sort of the answer fool according to his folly side of the Bonson uh, point that he makes. Don't answer a fool according to his And it's that side. That's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to show that their position reduces to absurdity. But when I read Sproul and Gershner in Classical Apologetics, what I find is there is a weight on the autonomy of human beings. And that's not a position that I find exegetically in Scripture. Again, the ability for man to reason things that are spiritual, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that's talking about spiritual realities in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Yeah, a man can tie his shoe and do math and do brain surgery. He can know his ABCs and 1, 2, 3s. But the fact that he cannot reason true spiritual things oh, yeah. is a problem. And Absolutely. again, I think that the classical method steps, well, to quote, um, Van Til, you jump off the Queen Mary, and what happens when you do that? You both drown. But the, all that is is accusing the classical method of not doing the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody, nobody can respond uh, in a salvific way to the spiritual truths without the Holy Spirit drawing them. That's not the task of the apologist. So it's not an indictment on the apologetic, classical apologetics that it doesn't do that. Because nobody does that. No apologetic system does. All we're trying to do is answer this. You say, well, the man can know how to tie his shoe. Well, okay, that's fine. But then it's just not true that when Van Til says that the, that he, that he says explicitly that the lost man cannot know any fact of reality truly. None whatsoever. We do not grant that you, that's a direct quote out of his, oh, yeah. why yeah. I believe in God. He can't know it truly, but I mean, this would be fitting underneath like J.I. Packer's idea of, of half truths equal a whole untruth. So they might. So what, what does the half truth? But that's not true. How to tie your shoe? What's the what's the untruth that that leads to necessarily? He has no. He makes no sense of why he does it. He makes no sense of why he exists or how the world operates. He yeah, can't, that's what the classical apologist is trying to address. Go, yeah, but he doesn't go for right. it. I don't, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you got the floor, Dave. Oh, well, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. So, I would say that the man who, again, he can tie his shoe, he can count, he can do brain surgery. Boy, I've created a really great guy. Uh, <laughs> this gentleman uh, or this lady, want to be uh, fair to both sexes, uh, cannot discern spiritual things. Again, the gospel is foolishness, but again, according to Paul, it is the very power into salvation. And so while you can do all those great things, you can't ultimately make sense of them apart from revelation. Yeah, yeah our faculty works, our, our mind works, our reasoning works, and, and we can know that. None of us are solip, solipist. Make sure I'm saying it right. Solipsist. As I talked to solipist, yeah, as I talked oh, to yeah. guys who are much more <laughs> uh, well acquainted in philosophy than I am. We know that that's not true. Why? It's not based upon our own knowledge. It's based upon God who is omniscient and transcends into his creation to give all I know all it's man not true apart from God. I don't need the Bible to tell me that. You don't need the Bible to tell you that? That, 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 that solipsism is false? No. Where does well, the Bible well, say you, that, actually? You need something that transcends your mind to go back on as an ultimate authority and nope. I know that's, that's the key right there let's stop right there because that is the that's the key point to all of this this whole ultimate 
authority and I want to get back to the autonomous reason and we bring them in our car, we don't get in their car and all that sort of stuff. Why do I need an ultimate authority to tell me that my mind is not the only thing that exists? How would I know that that's not my mind telling me that? Exactly. You're, 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 either you submit to God's authority or you submit to your authority. That's the thing is no matter what, you're submitting to some authority. But, but, uh, but look, when you, when you guys go out and you see the sun shining, you don't conclude that the sun is shining because you consulted an ultimate authority. But you might explain why there's a sun by ultimately showing it's there because of the creator. But as soon as you do that, you're just doing classical apologetics. You're not doing, there's nothing presuppositional about that. So showing a person con the connection between what he cannot fail to know when the sun is shining, if he's not blind, showing him the connection between that and then, the, as Dave was saying earlier, and I think he's exactly right, ultimately reducible. Well, you can show it's ultimately reducible to absurdity if you don't acknowledge what we now know to be uh, the triune God of the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. But I think we're yeah. conflating some terms here. All again, right. I'm talking about the natural world. And again, if, let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Paul is very clear as he begins to unpack the flesh and the spirit. Um, that is a great connection to what he says there. If, uh, if you unpack all, all of, again, we don't have time to do that. But there is definitely a distinction between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Yeah. Those who are in Adam, it's not that they can't do things. Obviously, God has used them to do things to be brilliant folks. But when it comes to spiritual matters, again, the sun shining and me knowing that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and as the uh, perfect substitutionary atonement is a different matter. Absolutely. The two. And so none of that is in, none of that contradicts the classical position. You I think you're exactly right. But again, how far do you take human um, human free will and human ability to uh, participate in autonomous reasoning? Um, I would say that when it comes to spiritual things, they don't exist. And so, uh, in the mind of the depraved person, why? We know what it says in Romans. They don't seek for God. They don't have knowledge. And I would say to, again, look at that idea. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You bet. You can look to the physical world. I mean, uh, Genesis, or not Genesis, Psalm uh, chapter 19, 1 and 2. Uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Uh, I think Paul in Acts chapter 17 does appeal to the reality that you know there is a God, but the real spiritual truth of your need for a Savior, the fact that you're under the wrath of God, is a key piece. And, and I would Absolutely. go back to, so, and I, don't, I hope I'm not at no, all. No, but, but what I'm trying to get you to see is everything you're saying is completely consistent with the classical apologetics model. That's not what distinguishes the two models, That's which right. is kind of what we're here to discuss, right. is, well, what... What is the distinctiveness of each of the models that the other model rejects? But the well, classical model, of course, acknowledges the role that only the Holy Spirit can play in the truth. It's like the difference between proving that Jesus died on the cross as a fact from history versus proving that his death on the cross pays for the, for, uh, the sins of the world. The latter is not something you can prove outside the special revelation of God, I think. But that's not presuppositional. That's just the difference between general revelation and special revelation. 
Well, and I would say to that, going to Romans 8, again, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. The individual who you're engaging, if you don't engage them as one who is hostile towards God, and in fact you depend on the idea that they're going to somehow be led to the triune God of Scripture, that's where the the major difference is for me. Um, Again, looking to the way that Paul, Peter, Stephen, all reason in Acts— Uh, Based on those 25 sermons, 10 major sermons, we can see that there is a methodology by which they engage people. They're always appealing to a transcendent authority, which is the triune God of Scripture. That is the God that everyone is hostile to, not to the idea of a God. And I think that's a key a key piece there. And man, I hope I haven't just taken us on a massive um, stretch. (laughs) some uh, vivid wasteland, because I, I know we all love inerrancy, and uh, man, I'm so grateful to uh, affirm it with you all. And if I was going to uh, put a plug in for why presuppositionalism is the best and most effective means to arrive at an inerrant Bible, and I would say, just kind of changing the channel here, and I hope I'm not being rude in no, doing no, that. No, not at all, please. If I were going to, you know, If I'm thinking, okay, let me try to think through a classical lens. I would say that the Bible is inerrant because we have great manuscript evidence. We're able to demonstrate a textual tenacity, and um, we are able to use that evidence to demonstrate that we've got under, uh, in the autographs, because I know we're all uh, believers in the 78th statement, the autographs contain the inerrant word of God. We can demonstrate that through um, historical. See, that's, not the, that's not the classical argument. Okay. Uh, yeah, go uh, ahead and give it to me. And well, I don't know. Yeah. No, because uh, if you look at, at the, uh, uh, I've got the book somewhere. I can grab it off the shelf. The uh, the One of the installments from ICBI, uh, R.C. Sproul talks about uh, the sort of methodological case. For inerrancy, it, it's it's not that one. I'll I'll see if I can find it here in, in a little you, you bit. See which uh, one I've got here. <laughs> yeah, the, no, I see that, and I can see how well worn it is as well, there, brother. Brother, I yeah. Just here, <laughs> here is here's the classical argument. Uh, reason can demonstrate that God exists. Now we can again we can argue whether that's true or not, but I think reason can demonstrate that that God exists with all the superlative attributes that all of the church fathers and all the great systematic theologians. Uh, uh, up through the Reformation, all the way up to Herman Bavinck, uh, have have celebrated that 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 we know these things. I think both through reason and some through special revelation. Uh, we can then reason can demonstrate that God has revealed Himself in history through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the history of Israel, and then eventually His incarnation into Jesus. We can prove uh, reason can prove that Jesus rose from the dead, for example. I think reason can show from the evidence that the Bible is the inerrant word of God by means of the fact that, uh, uh, here's the syllogism, the Bible is the word of God, God cannot err, therefore the Bible cannot err. Each of the premises that obviously would have to be defended, well how do we know the Bible is the word of God? Because lots of books claim to be the word of God. And my argument would include things like, well, it at least claims to be the word of God, that doesn't prove that it is necessarily to some people, but it does claim that about itself. But Jesus taught that the Bible was the word of God, for example. Uh, Paul taught that his words were the words of God. His sermons were the preaching of God. You can give these this evidence of its testimony. Uh, and so, if it, I mean, the details would have to be filled in. But the Bible is, is the word of God. God cannot err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. 
we can show the Bible is the word of God by by the evidence, and we can show that God cannot err by the evidence. So it follows necessarily that the Bible cannot err. That's that's our case. That's the case that Sproul, for example, built in his uh, uh, the, the the text of which I cannot remember here. But at any rate, yeah, so, no, I mean that argument is great, and it's a uh, great among us believers regenerated. But how are you going to prove that to somebody? Um, that it's not even great among regenerated. That's why I had my debate with Mike Lacona, if you saw that. Even yeah. Christians don't necessarily yeah. believe in inerrancy, right? Yeah. I think, that, I think that gets us to what I think is one of the fundamental issues. And uh, like I said, I'm color commentary here, so I might totally be wrong. Let me look at the camera. Uh, it's so easy to look at the computer screen rather than to look at the camera. Um, so you guys keep... Um, keep talking about yeah but how, how why would the unregenerate believe that how would they know that and as if you know these arguments from from natural theology and things like that are uh not useful for the mind set against god but your case and this is bonson's case this is van Til's case is i think uh ray ray i think how you put it was to bring them into uh your car uh, i, I yeah. think is how you put it uh, so I want to read just a, uh, a quick uh, quote from Bonson, and there are many, many, many other uh, quotes that, that we could go to. But this, I think, for me at least, is the linchpin, because I, I maintain that what you're saying the presuppositional method is doing is actually made impossible in principle by the very philosophical foundations that you hold to. So Bonson says, um, again, this is one quote among many, since neutrality is unattainable for either the unbeliever or believer, there are no facts or uses of reason which are available outside of the interpretive system of basic commitments or assumptions which appeals to them. The presuppositions used by Christian and non-Christians determine what they will accept as factual and reasonable, and their respective presuppositions about fact and logic will determine what they say about reality. So to put that in context of getting into your car, so to speak, anything that you say to them, they're going to interpret through this same uh, jaundiced eye that Van Til talks about, uh, and apparently are incapable of seeing anything in reality as it is. So any case that you present to them is going to be filtered through that same lens and interpreted in that same unbelieving, God-hating way, just to, to use the, the characterization that, that's typically used. So in principle, the very thing that presuppositionalism is supposed to do in showing the absurdity of someone's position is impossible because they cannot interpret reality correctly to see the conclusion that you're drawing them to. Therefore, it's pointless to have that conversation and to invite them into your car in the first place. And I think that gets us into this whole idea of autonomous human reason, what that actually means, uh, and why Dr. Howe and I at least would maintain that that's just a, a byproduct of modern philosophy that needs to be rejected. It's Kantian. And you're putting this theological spin on it, trying to, to get out of the problems that we would say don't exist in the first place, which is what Dr. Howe mentioned uh, at the beginning. So I'll be quiet now. I grabbed the book just to let everybody know. And the thanks, Bill, uh, uh, for sending me that text to remind me. But I grabbed it. So it's God's Inerrant Word, which I'm, I'm sure you have. The International Symposium on the Trustworthiness of Scripture, edited by... There's a chapter in there titled The Case for Inerrancy, 
a methodological approach. Uh, that would, I think, be a great summation of the classical, or I'm sorry, a methodological analysis. Just, just to kind of correct what I, I couldn't think of the title of the book earlier, but I grabbed it off the. Anyway. So, yeah. So I want to make sure that I'm understanding Mr. Tucker Adams' reasoning. And Adam, if you want to jump in, you feel feel free. What I think you're saying as you look at and what uh, what Bonson book was that, by the way, just out of curiosity. Oh, let me like, see. I've got a million uh, windows pulled up here. Uh, Presuppositional sure. apologetics stated and defended, I believe. Okay. Yeah. He was he was not this saying right that's our view. Yeah, that's it. So, so Adam, Adam, what Adam was summarizing is not our view. We don't think that's true about worldviews, that it's a network of presuppositions according right. to which people... We think that's self-refuting, and that's obviously false, but that's his view, and he's just trying to show then that would just render answer a fool according to his folly futile. Right. Because they can never understand anything outside of their own worldview. Exactly. And so... I guess my thought would be, and I, I want to make sure that I understand it, you're saying that the presuppositional position is self-refuting because we've said that unregenerate man cannot reason apart from God, and is that correct? I, I want to make sure, I don't want to, I know I just condensed what you said there, but I want to make I would sure say that the, I'm, I would say the understanding of worldview uh, as most presuppositionalists that I've read, uh, the way they understand the whole idea of worldview, and most uh, evangelical Christians, sadly, understand the idea of worldview, is self-defeating. And because of that, it makes a positional task that is supposed to be taking place impossible in principle, because it rules that out from the very beginning. So, so do you think the... Uh, the so it's your understanding that the presuppositional approach is actually supposed to uh, work the way that I, I, I actually lead somebody to faith. No, no I never said that at all. the impossibility of the contrary. It, in, about right. Okay, being able but to show the, the impossibility of the contrary. How could you show the impossibility of the contrary to somebody whose worldview will never let them be able to see the truth of what you're saying? Right. You said you were going to reduce their view to absurdity and show them that they were inconsistent and their view led to absurdity. But that's the very thing that's not possible in principle because everything you say is going to be interpreted through this jaundiced eye that Van Til says they have and that Bonson says they can't escape. And so they're going to interpret everything you say through that worldview and therefore never come to the conclusion that you think they should. I would say... Yeah, if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, yes. that, that would be correct. Yes. So now but, we're going to appeal to the Holy Spirit is the one actually doing all this, so your argument is irrelevant in that case. You all did do that. You all did do that yes. first, by the way. Uh, and that was very real. No, again, it's very clear. The Holy Spirit does work by taking the things that are foolish, quoting Paul again, the things that are foolish to this world and making them wise. That is only done through the Holy Spirit. The presuppositional approach does deconstruct worldviews, does destroy worldviews, and it does that, demonstrating a need for Christ. The naturalistic worldview, excuse me, the naturalist or classical apologist comes along and says, hey, you're really smart. All these things that you understand, let me show you some more that you don't understand. And again, it's a different approach. One beats one down to submission. The other one builds someone up, and that's at least how I see it. And I could be misrepresenting, and I'm not trying to paint with broad brushstrokes, but that's that's the way I observe uh, when I read Sproul uh, and Gershner and William Lane Craig and such. I, I think it's fair to say that uh, um, any progress or accomplishment in the eyes of a classical apologist 
in terms of somebody eventually coming to trust Christ for salvation. We credit to ultimately the act of grace in God's life. Absolutely. All good things come from the, the Father of lights, James says. Everything. So we, we never want to sound like we're saying, well, you know, we're going to do what we can, and then once we kind of get up against a brick wall, then the Holy Spirit's going to come along and push it over the finish line. It's like, well, in one sense, all of it is, is God. It's a question of ends and means. One of the means that God uses, and this seems to be manifest to me, in my experience as an apologist, I've seen this so often, is God uses the means of argument and reason. By the way, this characterization of autonomous is just it's a talking point. Uh, that's, that's, that's symptomatic of the Kuiper influence from Kant. It's, it's not autonomous. To, to use reason to see the Pythagorean theorem is true, there's nothing autonomous about that. It's not autonomous human reason. It's just reason. Yes. But, anyway, so, but look, look at the case of like Mortimer Adler, who was a, was a uh, secular Jew philosopher who through his study of philosophy, and I credit all of this to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life all along, through his attendance to the philosophy of Aristotle, he eventually got uh, convinced of the philosophy of Aquinas. And through his influence and reading of the philosophy of Aquinas, he got convinced of the existence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through that, he eventually, in his 80s, made, uh, uh, converted to Christianity. All of that was through this philosophical thing. All of it was to the credit of God's working in his life. But that was the means that God used to, to bring these things to, to, uh, to fruition. So, I would state that... Um you, Dr. Howe, when I say an appeal to autonomous free will, there is obviously not an intended deception in that. But I would say, and, and you well know that the reform position is that of, you know, uh, not so much the inability and total depravity for people to uh, not reason. No, everyone has a right reason. And that's what I've said again and again. It's reasoning spiritual things. And the unregenerate man does not have that ability outside of himself. That's why you proclaim the gospel, the triune God of Scripture. When you go to a generic God through, again, like the Kalam cosmological argument, you're appealing to a God that doesn't save, a general uh, a general God. We can win people to that all day. There's billions of lost people that have been won to that God. But Christians are called specifically to appeal to the triune God of Scripture, and that is the God who uses his Holy Spirit, to allow those who are dead in skin and those who have had their position reduced to absurdity, won by the Holy Spirit. And that's the difference in the way that I see the, yeah. again... No, I, the, I think you're, I agree with you. I wasn't quarreling with the expression autonomous human will. I was quarreling with the expression autonomous, <clears throat> autonomous human reason. Gotcha. Uh, so the will part, I think, is a legitimate debate to have. Sure, sure. I wasn't particularly I wasn't trying to quarrel with that, but it was this idea that that autonomous reason, as if somehow the fact that I'm a person is lost and he notices the sun is shining, he's he's an affront to God because he's trying to appeal to his his reason. You can't know the sun shining until you presuppose the triune. Is it go well? That's just false. There are things that we cannot fail to know because of the way God has created us. The lost man doesn't know that's why he can't fail to know. He may have all kinds of weird philosophical reasons why he's not a solipsist. Well, I guess we would I, I also agree with you about the Kalam argument. It doesn't deliver the God of classical theism, which is, I like the Kalam as far as it goes, but it does, I agree with you, it doesn't, but I, I would 
commend to your recommendation uh, Aquinas' argument, does deliver the God who is simple, omniscient, omnipotent, uh, all-loving, all-wise. There's only one God, and any reason that demonstrates the God with these superlative attributes has to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Anyway, I'm, I'm stepping on Ray Ray here. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, uh, uh, now I just lost it. <laughs> well, let me do one real thing. I don't want to, yeah. and, and I really, oh, yeah, I, I know it's, say, go yeah, for it. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, like the person looks at the sun knows it's true, but like, I mean, just, uh, since I'm more of a chihuahua, like sight and Bruggen Kate, you know, it's because he's unconscious. He's not self-aware. Um, so there's still at the back of it, there is the subjective reality. He knows God exists. He know, his knowledge is only, um, in accordance to God, though he is going to twist the truth at some level about the sun. He's going to say that that sun is billions and billions and billions of years old, that it came, yeah, it came first before the earth and stuff. So, you know, so all that kind of stuff. But yeah, he can know the sun is shining. Um, that so you, is can, you can start with his knowledge of the sun is shining and showing him that there is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's exactly. the classical apologetic. That's what classical apologetic is. Yeah, yeah what I see you guys doing here is. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Al and I kind of joked about this earlier before we uh, before we started was, well, we can just do that. So for some reason, the unbeliever or the Holy Spirit can use your showing an unbeliever in your car that their view leads to absurdity, but he can't use an argument from the fact that a tree exists outside my window that the God of classical theism exists to the point that the gospel is true. Yeah, I guess once I guess again, the, the means the Holy Spirit is using the argument as a means by which to draw people to Himself. It's no different yeah. than, than what you're saying. The difference is, and I don't want to miss this, I, I think we're glossing over this, but to me, this is the most important point. We're not talking about the gospel here in this particular instance of reasoning about spiritual things. We're simply showing uh, philosophically. If a worldview, if how we know reality, and this is not what we think, we think most worldview thinking, whether it's Bonson, Van Til, or whoever, most worldview thinking is incorrect uh, because it uses this whole glasses metaphor and it's the lens through which we interpret everything about reality. And we would say, no, that's false. It's self-defeating, first of all, but it's simply false. And obviously, if it's self-defeating, it has to be false. Uh, so if that is how we're going to understand worldview, which is how Bonson and Vettel characterize it, and Dr. Howe has even more explicit quotes than uh, the one uh, that I read a while ago, uh, then it's impossible. The, the, the presuppositional task is impossible in principle, Holy Spirit or not. So if you want to be pious, if you want to be God-honoring, it's not God-honoring to say God will use an illogical argument to bring people to himself. Can God do that? Yes. Does God want us to do that? Not according to Paul, when we're supposed to demolish arguments and every high-minded thing raised up against the knowledge of Christ, taking every thought captive. That is not taking every thought captive. That's using illogical reasoning, being unreasonable for the sake of God. And that, to me, is not biblical and is certainly not God-honoring. So if I'm wrong about that characterization of worldview and how Bonson and Van Til use it in the presuppositional approach, then I certainly want to know that. Uh, but yeah. everywhere that I've read, that is how it is characterized, and it, it's simply impossible. They rule it out from the from the outset. Yeah, and I'd say, is it God honoring to put him in the dock and let the sinner, the rebellious sinner, be uh, the one that gets to be the standing, the one that's the judge over his existence? And I go, that is definitely not God honoring. And so, what whenever that, you I'm go, not sure I know what that means. Yeah, what, what does that mean? Even the question to me, does God exist? And you're going to give it to somebody 
um, that is in rebellion against him, you're going to be like, okay, here's here's all the evidence. Here's all the evidence, you God hater. You but that's what Romans one says. How we know God through the things that are made. That is how we know as human beings. What is that's, unbiblical that's a, about that? How did Adam know God? We're not well, Adam. Well, well, well. We're not Adam. The end. I mean, there's nothing else to say. You're in I'm Adam, and you're Adam, actually. But we're we're not uh, we're not the first. Liar, Adam. you are Adam. <laughs> yeah, you can't believe Adam's going to make up everything, right? So that's right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, Adam, Adam wasn't. Whatever we decide about Adam is not relevant to the situation we find ourselves in, in now, because none of us are are outside the having fallen in Adam. That's right. So even if we discovered, well, Adam knew God in X, Y, and Z way, it has nothing to do with whether we can know God in that way, because we're not we're not in an unfallen state. Yeah, but it's so, very important because we don't believe in uniformitarianism, and there is something that happened. From creation and the and to to the fall in the garden, Adam knew God, and how did he know God? He didn't like God didn't just create, and he's this transcendent. So what, God. Is, what does he, the narrative say? How did he know God? He knew God from in here. Yes, but say I, that it's it, well, he's made an image. No, I'm saying how did you said that it was, okay. and actually you've used the word innate. Where does the Bible say that's how Adam knew God in the Genesis narrative or anywhere else for that matter? Well, he spoke. Didn't it? Doesn't it say that? He was walking in the cool of the day. That that's uh, that seemingly God like a presupposes. Yeah, yeah. So so there is special revelation. There is natural revelation, and they coexist together as two co-equal truths. And so, how do we know about Christ now, the second Adam? We know it from special revelation. He was right? walking in the garden yesterday. I saw him. Actually, Christ Christ is I'm not kidding. called the second Adam. That's that's another myth. The Bible doesn't refer to Christ as the second Adam. Just to just to correct the record there, it's the last Adam. The last Adam, yeah. 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 Great, well said. And the reason that's important is because <laughs> the, because the literary motif of Adam in the garden is repeated in Noah. It's repeated in the life of in the history of Israel. And it's repeated in the life of Jesus. So, yeah, well said. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, let me jump a little bit quick uh, on Mr. Tucker's statement. And I don't want to at all. Um, I'm really enjoying our discussion, and it's been especially uh, edifying to me. Always grateful to get to learn and be pushed. Uh, one of the things I think was a charge was that the presuppositional position is illogical. And I would say that it would be very um, dishonoring to God to call the position by which we see very clearly most, uh, if not all, I would consider, contend all of the sermons in the book of Acts, a illogical method. Where did they always start? They always started with the presupposition that God spoke. Start with the very first sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 2. What does Paul start with, or what does Peter start with? He starts with God speaking. So, I'd be really cautious in my mind to say that that's an illogical position when that's a position that we see the sermons put forward in the New Testament under. And that's not a slight or an attack, but I would certainly say that it's not a logical position to, again, start with individuals who do have uh, capacities which they cannot account for and to appeal to those capacities. And then once we recognize that their inability exists to deal with spiritual truths and spiritual realities, again, by the Holy Spirit calling people to salvation, they begin to see those things. Again, uh, God puts a new heart in them. God uh, gives them the gift of salvation. And uh, I want to say something, too. There's certainly a point where I would say I am not against the classical position in the sense that I don't believe that I believe it can't save people. No, I certainly think that people can be saved 
when the Kalam cosmological argument is presented, but on its own, it ha- it can't do it. What I'm saying is the presuppositional position co- cuts right to the chase. What is man's ultimate need? Not to believe God. What is man's ultimate need? Not to be uh, logical even. It is to recognize that the triune God of Scripture exists and that they are in defiance of him. Absolutely. And that's only going to happen when someone, again, goes to that. And Absolutely. so, my problem with the classical position is that, that that isn't where it starts. And I want to start, and I want to be as, again, close to what I see happening in Scripture. And again, what I see happening is, uh, you know, I've done a generic analysis of the all the sermons in the book of Acts and uh, essentially funneled it down to the last three. And that's a rhetorical methodology for doing research, right? Uh, let, let me. Can I ask you this then, just to make sure I have some clarity? Would you agree more or less that it's the finite universe that that's our proximate starting point for all of our reasoning? No, nobody doesn't start proximately with the finite universe in all of their reasoning. Does that sound true? Nobody doesn't. No one. Okay. Well, let me I'll say sure. affirmatively. Well, that our reasoning, the starting point of all reasoning, is the the approximate starting point is the finite universe. But where so is your starts. But where is your ultimate authority? How do you know that that comports with reality? You have to well, have a trans. But I just want to make sure before I get to a secondary question, I just want to make sure I was clear whether you thought that was a fair assessment that the finite universe is the proximate starting point, not ultimate, but proximate starting point of all reasoning does that sound reasonable yeah well we're conscious beings and we are relational beings and we again are creation but we can't understand even our own ability to reason again without god having transcended and given us that's not that's not that's derivative a baby or a two-year-old doesn't understand his ability to read just he just knows that this is dessert versus uh you know asparagus which one's which right or does yeah. that, or does that sound like it's not, it isn't true that that the proximate starting point of all reasoning is the finite universe? There's no place else to start with another person than. I one more time. I got my mind was 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 slipping there uh, in in focus. I apologize. No, no, no. I was trying through that idea of the of the two year old. Reasoning and having a conscious reasoning, and how they would have to depend upon themselves uh, in that position. It would be the the two year old doesn't really even know that he doesn't know what existence is and can't make sense of reality. He knows what asparagus is and what it tastes like, right? He knows what it tastes like. Yeah, he knows something got put in his mouth that he didn't like. (laughs) That's right. He may not even know God did it, right? Again, and I would also say we got to be careful not to conflate spiritual truths with what we see in, in the physical world. No, no, uh, I think that's a great yeah. point. We That's our accusation. We think that's what you guys are doing, is conflating the two and not realizing that the classical method is the one that understands how God uses and works in two different ways through natural knowledge and through uh, 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 his enablement that only comes through special revelation and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I would say that the presuppositional position goes right to the heart of the spiritual issue. It doesn't have to rely on created reality. That's evangelism, though, isn't it? That's not apologetics. 
Yeah, again, I think they're one and the like same. Again, you, I, I think again, you're you're making a distinction that doesn't exist. So you might charge well, us with <laughs> making problems. Be ready at all times to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. What's the hope that's in you? The irreducible complexity of the AI or the gospel? Yeah. No, but I, the hope that is in us is the fact that we got hope for the resurrection. Because the context of that verse, I think, is occasioned by the fact that the Christians were being persecuted. Yet they were able to bear up under the persecution in ways in which the pagan couldn't. And they say, well, what's the reason for your hope? The reason for their hope was because of the hope of the resurrection, because of what Jesus has done for us. So, well, then yeah, you have yeah, to give an answer as to, as to why you hold that to be true then. Well, yeah, these things weren't done in a corner, Paul says. Jesus said, believe the works. If you don't believe me, believe the works. And, and by the way, about to your point about Acts, it's interesting. You go through Acts in these sermons, how many times... There's argument, persuasion, uh, disputation, all the tools of argument, and starting where people are, whether it's with the pagans, hey, the God you worship in ignorance. You didn't say, hey, you didn't have the Trinitarian God, so you're your autonomous human reason. No, the God you worship in ignorance that I'm here to proclaim to you, is what he said to the, to the, um, uh, in, in Mars, uh, Mars. Who is the God that they worship? Who is the God that they worshiped in ignorance? It was According the Trinitarian God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they so were worshiping that God in ignorance. Where did Paul start? No, but I, I'm saying, I'm saying, he, he he didn't dismiss where they already were as being autonomous human reason. He started with their incomplete knowledge of God and led them through to the fuller knowledge of God. Well, that's but what he, that's the model. Does. Which is, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he's the he's the final and full uh, person that reveals God. So again, Absolutely. he didn't. Again, yeah, he appeals to this is the presuppositional approach and act. Well, the, the the presuppositional approach is to say you recognize these things, you have them, you know them, you have twisted them into polytheism over here. You know this stuff, and so here's how the as Oliphant would say, here's how the beach ball has popped out. You have this this uh, altar over here that says to the unknown God. Well, here he is. And then he goes, well, here's the gospel, but here's the wrath, here's Jesus Christ. Um, but then again, he'd never put it on them to judge it. He pronounces the gospel to them, and some believe and some don't, and he goes. So whenever you sit there and you get to be like, so basically it's leaving them with it and then letting them determine on their own the truth of it. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, so... Um, is this truthful or not? You get you get to this side, and so it, it's the same sort of maybe a version that I have, you know, for uh, the sinner's prayer and stuff like that. You know, I'm I'm not going to allow them to judge my God. I'm going to assert. I'm going to say the uh, persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's I I do not believe salvation. They will come into the knowledge, and they will do. Well, yeah, they, they recognize something, right? Well, because they will cry, Abba, Father, which will be a part of the triune God. That's what the Bible says. How do we know that the Bible is true? Because God has told us the Bible yes. is true. Uh, no, but apart from that, again, the world makes sense. Apart from a God who, again, 
thinks and a thinks according to the laws of logic, which we find in Scripture, according to a God who has revealed Himself throughout history. That was an odd look. You've read Bonson, you've read Van Til. I didn't just say something crazy there. That's again exactly what their claim is. Uh, uh, maybe I really struck you wrong there. I saw it. a crazy look. Speaking, uh, speaking of Van Til and Bonson, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, this is Van Til quote. Uh, I'm sorry. Oops. Are they are they getting video problems? Adam, Rebecca says you're not coming through, Adam Tucker. It would probably help if I took my mic off mute before I started talking. So all of those awesome points I just made, nobody heard. So. We'll have to take it on faith. I guess it was the Holy Spirit. Quote, here's a quote from Van Til. Um, if we begin the course of spiral reasoning at any point in the finite universe, as we must, because that is the proximate starting point of all reasoning. All right. Uh, so that's Van Til. Here's, here's uh, Oliphant. He says, in saying that we must, uh, we must begin with the triune God, we are not saying that a covenantal apologist must always begin its apologetic discussion with the triune God. Yeah, but that's, it has to presuppose the triune God sense. That's the whole point. So, yeah, we don't have to, I don't have to go up to you and be like, all right. Well, that's exactly uh, what guy. you were saying a while ago. Not you, but that's what was being said when I looked at the Mars Hill and you said, well, how did Paul begin? You kept saying, well, how did he begin? Well, he doesn't necessarily begin with the triune God. He depends, maybe begins where they are and carries them to that. And I thought you were objecting to saying, no, that's not the Acts model. He did start with the triune God, but everything is made sense of by the triune God. So that has to be the at the back of everything that you say and everything yeah, that is. you reveal. Yeah, and I mean, and, but the thing but is, is, you don't let them be the judge. You tell that's them. That's not inconsistent with the classical so. model, though, Ray Ray. That's not inconsistent with the model. I, I, where do you see the inconsistency between what you understand the classical model to be doing and what you're saying right now? I, that's what I'm not clear on. Well, I guess uh, it's a starting point. So say inerrancy. We're going to start um, here. You don't have the categories. You don't have all these things. And so we're going to look at manuscripts, and then you get to uh, look at the text and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's this just kind of abstraction of... Uh, you know, logic and, and that's in a neutral spot and stuff. And, oh, no, I landed up in liberalism. So and you don't think that there's a Bible I, argument to be made that the Bible you're holding right there is the Bible as it was written 2,000 years ago? That you're oh, able to skip all the textual criticism? Oh, I, I, I know that there is an argument. But then, again, if I'm talking to an unbeliever, they're going to try to find every little way to avoid the truth. So that's so... so so, to yeah. me, then, it sounds like what you do to avoid the unbeliever trying to avoid all these ways of truth is just jump to the punchline and then and then let the Holy Spirit tell him it's true or not. And you don't, but that's not really apologetics anymore. The, the, well, no, they, they can't make sense of contradictions without yeah, the truth God of Scripture. No, but they don't no, care I mean, because their the, worldview doesn't care, according to Bonson. Are you talking about without the existence of the God of Scripture or their presupposition of the existence? Without the, the without the existence of the God of Scripture. Yeah, like, that's an ontological point. No, no, no. The, is lying a part of God's character? 
well, you, you said they can't make sense of the law of, non, of contradiction without the triune God. That's an ontological point that doesn't distinguish our two models. Is lying a part of a being, of the character of being? If is lying, I lie, what? You, you okay. were breaking up, sorry. Yeah, if God cannot lie, is that an attribute of his character of being? No. It is not. God not being able to lie is not a care is not part of the God character. cannot lie is what I'm saying. It's not lying uh, is not a part of God's character. Okay, but I'm saying is that a part of his character? Is what a part of his character? Not being able to lie. Is that is, is that yes. an attribute of being that's, that's demonstrable by reason. Okay, but no, I'm just saying, there's your problem. Rooted in his being is the law of non contradiction. Which is epistemological. Yes. No, it's not. It is. It has epistemological implications, but it's. It, that's an ontological statement. In it's fact, the distinction between the distinction between ontology and epistemology largely is a modern distinction. In the classical tradition, all knowledge questions collapse into questions about being. So then it's a silly question to say that, or it's a silly phrase in my mind to say, well, you're confusing epistemology for ontology, and then to say that, well, both of them exist classically uh, as the same type, uh, the same typology. That, it collapses I mean, into it, but it's not silly in this respect. If you made a claim about how it is that knowledge is possible, and you said the only way you can know this is you have to presuppose the Trinitarian God of the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. That's what you have to assume and presuppose to have any knowledge at all. And I go, well, explain to me why I should think that's true. And then when you start to explain to me why that's true, you explain to me how it is that there has to be this God. Well, I agree there has to be this God, but you weren't saying there merely has to be the God in order for there to be knowledge. You were saying that the, you have to go a step further, that the unbeliever has to presuppose and assume there is this God before well, they have knowledge. There is this God, no assume, there is this God, and reality is only going to uh, make sense to you because there's this God. That's exactly right. I agree 100%. But, I, but it doesn't follow from that that the unbeliever has to presuppose it and assume it. Well, he can't avoid it, no matter what he says about his yeah, atheism. Whenever, whenever he does tell the truth, whenever he's actually making the truth that we know because why we find it in here, so they're making truth claims that align with God's word. You know why, but you know why he does that. You know why he does that? Because he is unconsciously presupposing because his brain was made by that yeah. God. That, that's a contradiction to... He's, it, Jason Lyle uses the word assume... Well, I don't have to assume that oxygen exists in order to actually breathe, but there has to be oxygen for well, me I to think actually breathe. You reading him wrong because he says that you say debating, debating assumes the oxygen it takes to talk, right? So yeah, it assumes it, the, the existence not, of the oxygen, not my presupposition not, of its existence. We're we're definitely always like I. You have to presuppose the triune being of God, the essence of the triune God. Well, tell me why that's true. Because that's just the way reality is. I mean, okay, you talk. Now that's an ontological statement, though. Reality's that way. Even if I deny the triune God, it's right. still the I'm, case that that triune God exists. You're unconscious to the truth because you beat it out of your head. If you whatever, are. whatever, I'm just saying. Then it isn't the case that I have to presuppose it. 
because you already are. And we're just as an no, but whenever whenever Bonson here, Bonson's the one that made this point in his debate with Sproul, because when Sproul go back and listen to the debate, Sproul was making the point you're making right now, and Bonson's like, no, 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 that's not my point. He's saying, no, I'm not merely saying that there has to be this God in order for these to be true, because he goes, well, obviously that's the case. Nobody denies that. He's saying epistemologically, well, show me that that's true. And I'm telling you, I haven't read everything that's been written on the subject, but I've never seen a presuppositionalist, Bonson, Van Til, Don Collett, Jason Lyle, uh, uh, Scott Oliphant, I've never seen anybody explain the epistemology using what they presumably understand epistemology to be. That's what I'm saying I never see. And and if they show me the ontological point, well, then that's the same thing we're, I'm trying to get you to see. That is the classical method, to say you can't have knowledge without God. Well, that's classical apologetics. That's not distinctive to presuppositional. Do, do you, now, I might be wrong, but tell me what the argument is. That's what I'm looking for. Well, it's, I guess, the, the atheist or the unbeliever. Their arguments do not presuppose the triune God. And so, since they do not presuppose the... Uh, since they're presupposing something else as ultimate, um, like so what if they gave you an argument for the the uh, mass of the sun? Do you you think their argument because it didn't presuppose in your estimation the the uh, the triune God that their conclusion is then false and they don't know what the mass of the sun is because they didn't? That's what I'm trying to see. Is show me where the the assumption. I mean, yeah, the transcendental argument transcends that, and you can't make sense of math. Again, without the triune God, so there. there so well, that's an ontological statement, right? <laughs> but they would say, "Well, I I know math, and they're just going to let math be some just random created or, or whatever. I don't know that's where ontological they, though. That's, that's not epistemological. Uh, they're going to use math, and they're going to say, "Here's the mass of the sun, um, whatever you know." But they're not. The thing is, is math can only exist in the triune God's world, right. and if you don't have the triune God. Then it can't exist. So we yeah, so now you're doing know. classical apologetics. That's, the, that's what the classical model tries to show. Is exactly what you just said. <laughs> it's presuppositional apologetics. Yeah, that's presupp- so I think I think you're confused about this. Uh, I do, I'm not saying you're confused about what you think. That's, you're that's presuppositional apologetics. Um, because so here here's the thing. We we presuppose God ontologically, and then the atheist must presuppose the assumption of God in their argumentation. I think you're missing uh, that point, and so um, I think that's I think that's actually where it lies. Is there's some sort of distinction you're not getting? Okay. Well, help me understand that distinction then. If uh, if you can think of that, so how to articulate? Uh, I feel <laughs> I, here's what I feel has occurred is every time that we begin to make sense of an argument, and say every time when there's something that you say, hey, natu- uh, you know, classical apologetics uses that framework, then you just say, well, see, that's classical apologetics. I don't think that that's really how that works. You certainly are going to arrive at situations because again, uh, God has through His grace, general grace, uh, given everyone some type of an ability to to live or to to use their mind. So when the presuppositional method, uh, I would actually say the classical method begins to imitate the presuppositional method in certain areas, you can't just say, oh, that's, see, you're doing natural apologetics. No, you're doing a form of it. Uh, classical apologetics. I apologize. I keep saying that. I keep thinking natural theology. So I apologize. And that is, if you want to, I'm making that's that. Fine. That's fair. <laughs> keep thinking. Uh, 
so every time, and again, when I first read uh, Sproul and Gershner's Classical Apologetics, I thought, some of this sure sounds presuppositional in some ways. Certainly, there's some connections between those ideas. But I think the ultimate distinction becomes, where do you make that final appeal? Where does the case rest? And for the presuppositionalist, we're going to say, the case rests with God. Who are you, O oh man, to judge God? And then the classical apologist is going to say, well, we've given them the evidence and we're allowing them to make that decision. And we're saying, no, no, the decision has already been made. God exists. Why are we now bringing God down into the courtroom? God is, is above the courtroom and he's actually uh, the judge over the courtroom. And I think that that's where the weight of the arguments is going to be differentiated. As far as this idea with uh, ontology and epistemology, I I am not a philosopher. Uh, I've taken one undergraduate class in philosophy, so uh, taken plenty of theory classes, uh, plenty of theology classes, but one one class in, in philosophy, philosophy of religion, right? Uh, that was my one class. And so when we're speaking, again, ontology, epistemology, ontology, claims of being, epistemology, truth claims. Revelational epistemology is going to operate different than the epistemology of those who don't confess the name of Christ. Those who are under the lordship of God are going to use a different and a higher type of epistemology, which is, again, revelational epistemology. So you can, again, all day begin to go back and forth and say every time we're making what we believe is an epistemological claim to say, well, that's an ontology claim. I would certainly uh, contend to the what I believe is the reality is uh, is that there is a higher level of epistemology that is revelational epistemology uh, that would, again, be superior, and that would be where I would go. So, so. Let, let, let me see what you think about this then, because you, I, I would just, let me make an assertion and tell me how you would uh, uh, quarrel with this. Th this. This notion that we identify as presuppositional is a very new kid on the block. I would argue it is not at all the Reformed tradition. Uh, it's not Calvin's view. I mean, I've got pull quotes from Calvin who extols the gift of God through the pagan philosophers. This is John Calvin. It's none of the Puritans. I mean, you read people like Charnock, you read people like Turretin, you read uh, uh, John Gill, you read uh, John Howe, you read John, John Owen, got the three Johns there. Uh, I mean, I've got so many pull quotes from these guys that you don't see anything in my, from where I'm sitting, that looks anything like this Kuiper tradition. I would assert that this, this, what we identify as Vantillian presuppositionalism is a, is a tributary of Abraham Kuyper and his, in, his influence from continental idealism and Kantian philosophy that he introduced into the conversation through people like Dewey Veard and then uh, 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 perhaps Voss uh, uh, and, and, uh, and others that maybe we could pick out. I know Van Til doesn't necessarily agree with with Dewey Beard in every in every play, but that's a that's a tributary that finds itself then it gets a foothold in American Presbyterianism through uh, his tenure at Westminster Seminary, and then for the 20th century, what you find in terms of apologetics in American Presbyterianism is this Vantillianism, and I would go that's not I mean James Dalzow is another one. There so, there are strong and Jay, uh, and uh, uh, David Van Drunen is another yeah. one. They're strong. Reformed voices saying this is a departure from the Reformed tradition. Dr. Howe, I hope that, and I, I do not know your age, but I hope that by the time, uh, if God allows me to live to be 
55. I think there you are. You're 55. Uh, you. Hopefully, I will have the ability to, to list off that long lineage of names. I'm not. I'm not trying to impress. I'm just. I know. I I you know these names as well as I do. I'm just. I'm not trying to. No, no, I actually, uh, the one thing I greatly appreciate and is your keen mind and your keen ability to research. I would never pretend that I have such an ability. Uh, here I am a guy with, with no PhD and I'm so grateful to get to contend against you. Uh, I do believe that everything that we have said today has glorified God because I do think that we've, again, pointed to Christ over and over again. And I mean that very sincerely. But one of my big problems, I think, would be with uh, your claim there, and, I've, and you're, that's not the first time I've heard that claim, regarding the new kid on the block is presuppositionalism. Yeah, direct Ventilian presuppositionalism, as we see it, would seem to be a newer kid on the block, and I would actually contend, based upon my generic analysis, I'd be happy to send it to you. It's not a published generic analysis. It was done for a uh, college class, a seminary class, uh, based upon uh, the generic analysis of the 24, I was saying 25, 24 sermons in the book of Acts. Again, there are multiple, uh, in fact, there are six different themes that we see within those sermons, and they run hook, line, and sinker along with what we see in Ventilian apologetics. And my position would be the first apologist that we see um, when we see Justin Martyr and his uh, dialogue with Trifo, uh, when we can go through the the long list of folks that you brought forward. Uh, their major influence was not the fact that they had the canon of Scripture in front of them. And again, I would say that while there were elements of presuppositionalism, because every time we say something and it, it kind of goes along with what you're saying on classical apologetics is, you say, see, the that's classical apologetics. I would say that classical apologetics has deviated from what I see in the New Testament regarding what Paul does and what Peter does and what Stephen does in the book of Acts. And what, if anything, Van Til was uh, a bit reformational in the way that he went back to it. And yeah, of course, um, you can look at, again, block quotes of Calvin. I can turn around and do the same thing with block quotes of Calvin to say, and, and as uh, Oliphant does, we can turn around and do these block quotes all day. The reality is, what methodology is going to get me closer to what is in Scripture when we exegete it? Um, that's great that we've got a bunch of folks, um, Aquinas, uh, in church history who have come up with uh, different ways and different arguments. Uh, Amsel, uh, great, great stuff. The reality is I want to do, at least for me, if I want to submit every thought captive to Christ, uh, as we would certainly all agree on, I'm going to look at what do I see in Scripture, and how do I process what I've been done. This is helpful to clarify, because I, I would say the question in the debate over most of what constitutes this debate but on apologetic method are philosophical questions, not exegetical. It's just like appealing, you know, the Bible more often than not always describes God in physical categories. It talks about his eyes, his, his lips, his hair, thankfully he's got hair. Uh, his, I mean, and so uh, a person would be hard-pressed to get exegetically the grammatical historical method of biblical interpretation, which I don't know any conservative evangelical who doesn't use that, including uh, Scott Oliphant or Greg Bonson or the titans among presuppositionalism. That doesn't said that that's the best way to understand Scripture yeah, since we're all... That doesn't come from Scripture is what I'm saying. 
that doesn't you don't get your principles of hermeneutics from the Bible. You have to have principles of hermeneutics from somewhere else. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to understand your Bible unless you're going to have some kind of move like, well, the Holy Spirit enables me to understand the Bible apart from the tools that everybody else has to use. They're all the theologians that we admire. They had to use these, the grammatical historical method, but I'm able to just get it straight from the Holy Spirit, what it means. And you go, well, you know, if that's the method, then why, is there, why, do, uh, why are there Reformed Baptists as opposed to full Presbyterian Paedo-Baptists? You know, for example, if the Holy Spirit's the one to sort of straighten this, well, everybody knows, no, there are certain uh, principles that you have to own up to and do due diligence. You know this better than I do as a pastor. Because when you preach the word, you've got to learn Greek, you've got to learn Hebrew, you've got to learn principles of grammar. We don't learn grammar from the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach what a direct object is. The Bible teaches, this is what the Dake Study Bible, Finished Innings Dake or Finest Innings Dake, argued that God is a, is a, a has bodily parts. Because that's the way the Bible taught. Well, how am I going to know that those, those are figures of speech or not? I can't know that from the Bible. That's the very thing that's in dispute. Do you see that there's, just as how John Owen said it. John Owen said, there are sundry cogent arguments which are taken from external considerations of the scripture that evince it on rational grounds to be from God and are necessary unto the confirmation of our faith herein against temptations, oppositions, and objections. Now, maybe we can say, well, who is John Owen? What does he know? But that's the tradition. That's the, that's the Reformed tradition. I would think John Owen would be probably unparalleled in terms of exemplifying this Except maybe his congregationalism, perhaps <laughs> we might a Presbyterian might quarrel with that. Let's what chase would, that rabbit because we're 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 going on two hours here. So let's uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, and uh, yeah. it's 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 never fun to stop. We could go all night. Maybe we'll do a part two. But uh, that, how how would you guys uh, respond? Or uh, what what are your thoughts about the you you have to get your principles of hermeneutics from from somewhere outside of Scripture? So I would say that. Again, we are going to find the way that Scripture is handled correctly by looking at the way that Peter handled the Old Testament, by looking at the way that Paul handled the Old Testament. Those things are clearly laid out. Did they, um, did they offer a name for each construct by which they used principles to exegete Scripture? They might not have had a name for it. But we also recognize that they were men carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, what, again, my understanding as I read the um, 1980 statement on hermeneutics, and Dr. Howe, you've probably taught it, um, I'm sure, or in some way you've sat in on some lectures on it, or, or Mr. Tucker, maybe you've had a class in hermeneutics on that, and they've gone through that. As I read that, everything that I read from that statement is trying to comport to what we see identified in Scripture as the way Scripture, the New Testament church in particular, handled the Old Testament. And from that, we do the best we can to, uh, to, uh, to follow that methodology. How was you able to understand what those Scriptures are saying without already having some hermeneutic? How would you be able to understand what those Scriptures are saying? Again, I would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What I'm saying, what is your principle of hermeneutics to understand 1 right. Corinthians? Already you've had a, you have hermeneutics, or you wouldn't be able to understand 1 Corinthians. Well, yeah, you can. And I mean, you've asked this question to Jason Lyle, and uh, he answered it, I think, very well. 
because it's one of those things that you, you come into contact with Jesus Christ and then you stand corrected in sanctification. So I think it's one of those things that, yes, it's, it's whenever the innate and the outside meet, and it meets in the covenantal documents of, uh, of God. And, and uh, whenever you look at Scripture, you can have wrong-headed hermeneutics going into it, and then you can stand corrected. I, I don't but see you get, the problem. You get your hermeneutics from God, then. Uh, yeah, God gives everything us into salvation. Yeah, so, I mean, and I mean, so, the Sunday school answer is you get everything from God, right? Hermeneutics are a good gift. They so, come which one of us? Which one of us are wrong? Do, do we believe that Jesus, Jesus's prayer was answered? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Again, that would be what is the ultimate authority? And I know you would all say, "Well, yeah, um, the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into all truth." I don't God, think that's. I don't think that's talking about. I think Jesus there is talking about the writing of the New Testament. He's, ta he's telling the disciples they're going to write the New Testament. Yeah. Even better, yeah. because that shows us that the way they handled Scripture is exactly how we should handle it. And God was going to preserve his word and make his word available so that his church could have truth. But I'm only able to know that Jesus meant that because I have some way of understanding written text right. before I came to the written text. I can't get the way to understand written text from a written text. That's a that's self defeating. Yeah, he met you where you are, and then he corrected you. I, I God I is yeah, and so, so it's, God uses language. We know that, right? He spoke to Adam. How did Adam know that he was talking to God? God spoke to him. How did Adam, how did Adam know that he was that he was hearing? How did Adam say. understand words? God made him with that mechanism. And so, if God was going to speak to Adam, and God was going to speak throughout history, God would, again, provide for us the best mechanism. How come we have different interpretations, then, between the four right. of us? You guys, and who's wrong, then? Yeah, so, some people have uh, problems with, uh, you know, uh, pornography. Some people have problems with uh, drinking a lot. Some uh, So, we're but all... You're saying that Adam, Tucker, and I are in sin because of our... No, our no. No, because there's definitely a distinction between uh, wrong hermeneutics and and those kind of other things. But I'm just saying we are all. But you're just repeating what that we're different. How do we know who's right and wrong? Yeah. How, how do we adjudicate this among ourselves? If you say, "Well, the Holy Spirit does this," so this well, is apparently so, drops the ball with one of us because we're not in agreement. Well, that's why this stuff happens. So we have to do it in community. So it's not just solo scripture. It's so solo scripture, and that's why we're having this thinking conversation tonight. Is because we do need to correct each other, and uh, you know, uh, it's one of those things of it. Is what scripture say? How does scripture handle the text? And I think you know that's what Dave has brought out. So how I would they, okay. how I the text. That all of us are, are greatly familiar with Grudem's text, and. Again, I just love the way that he lays out the authority, the clarity, the sufficiency, the necessity of Scripture. I think his chapter on the clarity of Scripture is outstanding. Um, of course, I'm no no uh, no theologian, so I'm just the guy who read it. Uh, but I think the clarity of Scripture is certainly there. But because we are um, impacted by sin, we're not only going to have some issues with secondary and tertiary doctrines, and, and I would say that that our issue here is more of a tertiary thing. Yeah. We're going to preach the gospel together. I think that that's certainly going to happen. And if I was going to anything about those who would functionally um, try to stay, hey, I'm going to stay in the one camp of presuppositionalism. I'm going to stay in the one camp of classicalism or the one set, 
the one camp of covenantal apologetics. Uh, I would state that what we probably are best served with is using the best of them to our abilities and recognizing, again, we want to hone those key, uh, hone in on those to the best of our ability. Uh, now, again, I'm going to, I don't like the idea that the cos- cosmological argument is the best argument uh, to bring someone to Christ. I don't think that that's going to happen. Is that a starting point? Maybe for some. Uh, again, God has, throughout the history of the church, called some to salvation by simply reading the Gospels. Uh, I think you're probably your friend Ted Cable. Uh, I know when uh, he and I met, um, he had said, yeah, I read the Gospels and I came to salvation. Um that is an amazing thing. Uh, I was one to the gospel through someone preaching the gospel. And, and to tell you the truth, I don't even know if it was a, uh, because I'm a Baptist and we don't always preach what we'd call evangelistic messages. It might have been uh, something on how to be a better husband or a better wife because we were in Ephesians. Like, who knows? But yeah. God does do that miracle. And I, I would say I would always support every apologetic system that would put Christ as the primary central focus, leading people to Christ. And uh, I just personally believe, from my experience, that the presuppositional point uh, position does that a little bit quicker, and to me, from my yeah. position, a little bit better. And you know, one thing to consider uh, as we as we close this down is that because um, uh, you've made several references to the Kalam argument. So Aquinas's argument is very different, and Aquinas's argument delivers all of the classical attributes of God and not just his bare existence the way a Kalam style uh, might. By the way, I had a friend who was as lost as a goose who was watching Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth movie, and it said something in there, and he thought, that's not true, is it? And grabbed a Bible somewhere and started reading it and got saved. Amen. So, you know, tsunamis, sometimes people come to Christ through tsunamis, so... Sure. Maybe sure. he can use uh, some of us to, to reach people too. Well, guys, let's uh, let's draw this to a close. And uh, you know, the the intent really was not to uh, necessarily change any of our minds tonight, but we at least wanted to be able to to clarify possibly some misunderstandings, make sure that our positions were uh, at least articulated in a way that we were satisfied with, and uh, obviously have some back and forth. Uh, regarding our differences, so maybe we can do a, a part two and, uh, and and see what happens. But uh, say that I'm sorry. Yeah, one question, please, Doctor How. Really do appreciate it. press that question. Mm-hmm. You've pressed it to more than one person. Could you please email it or have uh, Mr. Tucker email it to me? I would love to do my very best to try to strive to answer that, and then I'll just win you over. So, <laughs> and, uh, I, I look forward to that. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> hey, so, uh, so Ray Ray and uh, Dave, tell people how they can.